Well, welcome to our podcast uh, on today, Sunday, uh, May the 15th. And today we're going to be talking about the nature of presence. And we're going to start with the story of the transfiguration. The transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Thank you, Patty. Well, we're looking at the subject of presence today. Not, as my son said, does that mean we're all going to be given something? (laughs) Any opportunity to be given stuff, uh, children. But CE, presence. And that story of the transfiguration is where the disciples get an experience of Jesus' presence firsthand. He, He goes up onto that mountain and he opens himself to them and he reveals to them the true nature of his presence. And I've always thought that the concept of presence is an interesting one. Virtually everything exhibits some form of presence. And by that, by by presence, I mean the idea of something or someone being felt of as present. The idea of something or someone being felt of as present. And it's almost an emanation given off by something, presence, that we're able to pick up. It's like an emanation. Now, how many of you noticed the presence of the icon when I walked in the room? I mean, you thought, oh, my goodness me. I said to Matt that I'm going to get everyone to call me father from now on. (laughs) but But actually, you know, that icon has got presence. And funny enough, icons, when they're made, they're designed to give, an icon is designed to give a window into the divine. That's the idea of an icon. It's not just a picture, but from the very nature of their design, they give an aspect through the geometry of the nature of eternity. And that's not the transfiguration, that's Christ among the heavenly bodies. And I was talking to the guy who painted that for me. I had someone that actually did this. And he was telling me when he was learning to be an icon painter. And he was painting this picture, and he just couldn't get it together. And and when you you paint icons, it's like a spiritual discipline. He rang up his icon master, whatever it's called. And he said to the icon master, I can't make it work. And the icon master said, well, are you praying while you're painting? He said, no. He said, well, you cannot paint an icon without praying while you're painting. And the idea is it 
imbues presence into the picture. And that's, you know, they use that very much in the Greek Orthodox, you know, the idea of that. And those symbols on your service sheet, they're, they're that third eye, there's a presence, even about symbols. And that's, a, that's the Om symbol in the middle there. That has a presence. And, and that's a, a rendition of the transfiguration that, again, has a presence. And it's not just visual. I wonder what, this, what presence this sound has for you. Now that has a presence. It takes you to a certain place. It has a, it, you have an experience from it. And I think that in the same way that inanimate objects like the icon or the bell have a presence, so do all things. Trees have a Have you noticed the trees have just gone green this weekend? Isn't it amazing? We were driving down, we were driving down uh, I always think it's like the Truman Show to the end of, you know, Glenwood is the end of the Truman Show. We were driving down there, and literally, Heather and I noticed they were actually going green as we were driving down. They probably were because it's down valley. But, but the fact is, you know, the trees, plants, seeds, gold, everything has a presence. And I think so do people. We talk of, you know, in England anyway, we talk about coming into the royal presence. You know, there's a sense of, of coming into a, you know, they have presence, the royalty. And same way everybody does. Some people are said to have a malevolent presence. Others, a calming presence. And each of us, I think, gives off some form of presence that affects our surroundings. And maybe we're unaware of quite what that presence is and what the effect is. You know, but we notice it in others that may not even notice it themselves, the way they look or walk or sound or smell or feel builds up a presence about them. And then as well, there's something undistinguishable, something ethereal that just is, and that we can't quite put a finger on it, but we know it's there. We pick it up as well in their presence. You know, animals pick things like that up. They pick up the fear. They, they know what's going on. They experience something. They instinctively trust someone. It's there in the presence. And the reason I think it's interesting is that the nature of such presence, the nature of all these presence, is, is they affect the surroundings. Your presence affects your surroundings. Just like, you know, in quantum mechanics, I always like to mention quantum mechanics. It makes you sound better. You know what you're talking about. But in terms of, you know, in quantum mechanics, when you're looking at an experiment, you affect the experiment itself. Your presence affects the experiment. Just like in quantum mechanics, I think we affect our surroundings through our presence when we walk into a room. And if that's true, then the more we express a loving presence, the more we can affect our surroundings in a positive way. But, you know, it is a divisive issue, this idea of presence. The church, maintained by the church, I mean the Christian church, particularly the Catholic church, and our Protestant church, Church of England, maintains that the quality of communion that you are given has no, bears no relation to the quality of the morality of the priest that gives it. 
and they will argue for the fact that it doesn't matter if you've got a rubbish priest. If they give you communion, all the presence is in the communion. And really, they're establishing their idea of the real presence. But they, they take out any idea, because, you know, of difficulties. They take out any idea that it's better if it comes from a, a holy person or not. That they're much more interested in making it about that. And I think that, you know, downgrades the idea of the presence given out by the priest in communion. You know, what they really want to do is to put the, the presence into the real presence in the bread and the wine, which is what they believe, that, you know, that is where the, the Christ is. And that's an aspect of presence, you know, how that is put there. And, and it's also interesting to me when the monks came, Lexi, uh, when the monks came the other day, I asked one of the monks whether or not presence played any part in the, in the transmission of spiritual knowledge. And they were very clear that it plays no part at all in the transmission of spiritual knowledge. And it's all through the communication of ideas. You see them going like this when they communicate their ideas to each other. It's all about ideas coming backwards and forwards. And the transmission of ideas, you know, I think that is important. You know, that, what that really is, it's me. This is transmission of ideas. It's me thinking of an idea like this one that I'm talking about right now, and me communicating that idea to Mac or to you. I communicate that idea to you, and you replicate that idea in in your head, in your mind, and then you re-experience the idea yourself and and test it. You know, idea one here, communicated to Dinah. You replicate the idea in your head. We have an aha moment. It's, yes, I get that idea. That is the communication of ideas, and that really is the nature of language. That's how language works. But I think the presence we're talking about here is beyond that. I think when ideas are involved, it is us that is creating and filtering the ideas rather than being affected by the very essence of presence, different from ideas. Now, unlikely as it might be, but if Harrison Ford walked in the door, actually, it's not unlikely in Aspen, is it really? But if Harrison Ford walked in the room, he may or may not have presence but the majority of us will be affected not by what he's directly giving off, but by our referencing all the films that we've seen, all the ideas that we've got about, wow, all the hours I've spent with him in the company of him, and there he is. Now, in that sense, it's our stuff about him that is giving him presence with film stars. It's all the stuff that we've, about him, they may not necessarily, they might have presence, but It's our ideas about that. And I think that's different from the impact of pure presence. And that's apparent when you don't even know somebody. That's the presence I'm talking about here. I love, I'm going to tell you again. Listen, if you're here with me longer, you're going to hear all the stories again and again and again. But I love that story about the Buddha, the story about Buddha and presence. The Buddha came to camp, as he did, he traveled around. And he camped by this uh, village. And there was this uh, um, father whose daughter was going to get married that week. Uh, to, to her fiancé, and she thought it would be great to get the daughter blessed by the Buddha. You know, good thing. So he sends the daughter off to be blessed by the Buddha. And the daughter walks in, opens the Buddha's tent, comes into the Buddha's presence, falls to her knees, and then becomes a disciple immediately and sends a message back saying, I'm not coming home. I'm a disciple of the Buddha. doesn't happen here. And then... Um, the, the, the father's furious, so he sends the husband to go and get him. And of course, the husband you know, comes down, opens the tent, Buddha's there, comes into, <laughs> comes into the Buddha's presence, 
looks at the widow, falls to his knees in abject prayer, and he becomes a disciple and says, the wedding's off, I'm going to be a disciple. So, of course, the, uh, the, husband, the, the, the father decides to, you know, he needs to take matters into hand. And uh, so he sends two murderers to go and kill the Buddha. You know, that's the way to do it. So the murderers, of course, they come into the camp, they steal into his tent. The Buddha's doing his ablutions or whatever it is. And as they come in with their knives, the Buddha turns around and they look into his eyes, drop their knives, fall to their knees and become disciples of the Buddha's work. And that is the nature of presence that I'm told. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't really matter, but it gives you the idea of that nature of presence, of the impact that it had. And, you know, it's similar here with the transfiguration. In fact, the disciples even go a little bonkers themselves. Lord, is it, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. And the thought is that they are out of their minds, the disciples. They've been taken out of their minds by the presence. John O'Donohue, in his book, Eternal Echoes, describes presence as real aliveness. You sense and feel presence. It comes towards you and engages you. It is the whole atmosphere of a thing or a person. It is the atmosphere of the spirit that is behind them. It is something that you sense and know but cannot grasp. It engages you, but you can never quite capture its core. It remains somehow elusive. And in the case of Jesus... It was the presence of God. And here it grips the disciples. Its light, its luminosity reaches out and grips them. And this is a transforming moment in the Bible, the transfiguration. But also you can see in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna says to Krishna, the ultimate being, now I know, this is what Arjuna says to Krishna, now I know why the universe delights and rejoices in you. Terrified, the demons scatter before you. Sages bow. Why should they not bow, eternal creator, infinite Lord? You are both being and non-being. And what is beyond them both? The primordial God, the primordial person, the ultimate place of the universe, the knower and the known, the presence that fills all things. The presence that fills all things. And the Tao Te Ching, the Tao is called the great mother, empty yet inexhaustible. It gives birth to infinite worlds. It is always present within you. You can use it any way you want. And that is the presence here that we're talking about. The eternal presence is the true transforming presence. And it is within us all. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you. And that's what he's talking about. And that presence that we have available within us is ours to express. And when we express that presence, things change around us. I'm afraid, unlike the monks, I do believe that spiritual knowledge is transmitted by presence. I think that we learn from someone just by the way they are. Some of you came when James Finney was here. And it really wasn't about what he said. I mean, he could have recited the phone book really he could have recited the phone book it was his presence and the way he was that we learned from he was almost transparent and it was much more about his presence and the way that he was that we learned from Jesus says 
I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. And in saying that, he pointed out the fundamental spiritual identity that we all share, that I am. I am in the Father. You are in me and I am in you. And if that I am is in me, and that in me, and if that I am is in you, then we all share something that can communicate to itself. I can communicate my I am to Dinah, and she can communicate. You know, there is a presence experience going on with that. And when that happens, we share that real presence of Christ or the Tao or whatever you like to call it as our own, and it changes us. It changes us. But do you know what the trouble is? We hide. We hide. We have our real presence. And then on top of that, we have our ideas about ourselves, how we are not worthy, how we are ashamed, how we are sinners, how we do not live up to our ideas of what we should be, and most damaging of all, how we don't live up to what we think others should think of us. You know, we don't live up to any of that. And because of this, we create our personality to hide behind, our persona, our mask to hide behind. We create that. And as Thomas Merton says, thus I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceivable to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. But there is no substance under the things with which I am clothed. I am hollow and my structure of pleasures and ambition has no foundation. I am objectified by them. But they are destined by their very contingency to be destroyed. And when they're gone, there'll be nothing left of me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness to tell me that I am my own mistake. And our mistake is to hide. All of us try to hide. We hide ourselves from each other. And like Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they were ashamed and they hid from God. And that's what we do. And all of this hiding really just serves to, ex- to obscure the true nature of who we are, the real presence. And that real presence needs to be expressed through all the very things we're trying to hide. That's the downside. We have to express it through all the things we're trying to hide. Our very brokenness, our mess, the shambles in our lives. In order to express the real presence within us, we need to allow that to be seen too. If I tried to present myself as someone whose life worked perfectly, who had all the answers, who never put a foot wrong, you'd all know it was Tosh. It wouldn't be, it's not me, it's not real. You know, it's not, it's not how things are in the world. You know, I do have dark aspects in my life. You know, I have problems, things that don't work, things that I'm really struggling with. And that's, that's a part of who I am. And when I'm congruent with that, something of the loving presence can shine through because I'm not trying to hide it. Like a twisted tree. You know, a twisted tree still has a presence. It's still tree-like. It still gives off that wonderfulness, even if it's twisted. And so our role in life is really to be true to our expression as to what we're meant to be. 
true to the expression that God has uniquely made us to be, however broken that is. And there's no right way to be. There is only true expression. Again, Thomas Merton, he says, God utters me like a word containing a partial thought of himself. A word can never comprehend the voice that uttered it. But if I'm true to the concept that God utters in me, if I'm true to the thought of him I meant to embody, I shall be full of his actuality. I shall find her everywhere in myself and find myself nowhere. I shall be lost in her. That is, I shall find myself. I shall be in God. I shall be saved. And that's how to express the true presence within us all. And really, until we start to do that, nothing will change. Because it'll all be about our minds and not our hearts. It'll all be about our minds and not our hearts. We are the transformation of, you know, what we're about here at the Aspen Chapel is the transformation of consciousness. And by that I mean truthfulness and lovingness being the predominant aim in life. Talking about it, modeling it, transmitting it to others and having them see how ultimately satisfying and healing that is, that's what we're about. Cooperating with a friendly universe to bring healing to a troubled world. And we're not going to do that on our own through our minds and through our great ideas. It's going to come through us expressing our real essence of life, our holy presence that's within us. And that will be the transforming agent in making the world a more peaceful and loving place. Finished. You'll be relieved to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you to come through us to bring that healing presence to Sharon and her family, to the memory of Nikolai, everybody involved. We just pray that you will enfold them in your love through their friends, through us, through everyone in the valley. You will uphold Sharon and all the difficulties and darkness there. May your light guide her and all of us to your truth. We also think of the family of the longtime local Peter Rizzuto, whose memorial was yesterday, and we pray for him and his family. We pray for Ruby, Sophie Catter's school friend who's gone missing. Pray for Tulisai Wilkinson suffering financial hardship. For Critchell Bryce, Kim Rogers, Philip Hodgson, Will Welsh, Georgina Ortiz, Barbara Olkerton, Patricia Hill. Lord, enfold these people in your love and may your holy presence heal them, enable them, and love them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.